All right. Well, hello, everybody. Um, I decided to do a little bit of a different show today. Instead of focusing on um, Egyptology, I went more into prehistory. And the reason I decided to do that was once in a while, there's a post um, on Facebook about a place called Wadi Al-Hitan, which um, is the whale valley. They found a lot of whale bones there. And then that generates a lot of discussion amongst people about, you know, um, are those whales from the Great Flood or um, most people presume that they're from the Great Flood, but they're actually not. So I've living here and exploring Egypt, I've uh, found quite a few interesting things that I, I never knew about um, that's related to prehistoric Egypt. And so I thought I'd put something together and um, uh, cover that off instead of my usual ancient history stuff. So, so like I said, um, living here, I found out, uh, you know, a lot of things about this country that I didn't previously know. So in uh, the image on the left, that's um, a whalebone from Wadi Al-Hitan. And then um, in the top right, that's a dinosaur bone. Uh, there's actually a lot of dinosaur bones Ildi, can you uh, share your yeah. screen, please? Oh, yeah, hang on. Yeah. So I'll put your screen on there so we can all see what you're talking about. All right. Can you, can you see it now? Uh, no. Okay. What about now? Yep, there it is. I will All right, good. Add on there, and I will remove myself. And the stage mm. is yours, buddy. All right. So, um, again, to the left, uh, you've got some whale bones. That's prehistoric whales, not modern whales. And then in the top right, we have a giant dinosaur bone. And then down in the bottom of the screen, we have um, some petrified wood and uh, plant fossils. So <clears throat> Egypt actually has a, a very long and diverse history that goes back way before the pharaohs and the pre-dynastic times. And it's so rich in fossils of all ages that you can pretty much trace the entire history of life on Earth um, in this country, which is really, really uh, interesting. So I did a little bit of map, uh, a little bit of a map here um, of some of different different um, fossils that can be found here. Um, Numberlites, uh, other seabed creatures and fossils can be found around the Giza Plateau, but also all the way down to about Luxor, which is you know the middle of the country there. Um, fossilized trees are found in Fayum and in Mardi. Mardi is actually a suburb um, within Cairo. So that's something um, that you can go and check out if you're in town. Whilst Fayoum is a little bit um, further out, it's about 100, um, 100 kilometers from Cairo. Then we have um, Wadi Al-Hitam, which is where you're going to find the prehistoric whale and marine fossils. That's also in the Fayoum region. The dinosaur fossils, um, 
They found some in the Paharaya Desert, which is um, uh, where the green arrow is pointing, but they also found some uh, around the Red Sea, which is quite interesting. And I think uh, uh, maybe about 10 years ago or um, probably over 10 years ago now, they found a new species of um, dinosaur around the Red Sea region. And then the oldest plant fossils are way out there in the desert, um, which is quite interesting. I had a photo up just before. It's the one on the bottom right there. Um, that's actually plant fossils embedded into rock. And there's a fair few of that lying around um, in that region. So to give you an idea, um, the world looks very different, obviously, at different stages. Um, but a long, long time ago, before the pharaohs and the gods, uh, Egypt and most of northern Africa was pretty much a sea, as you can see. Um, here's a little bit of a, uh, a better map. So from about 65 million years ago to about, you know, 33 million years ago, um, the top part of Africa was actually a sea inlet. And so it was very rich in uh, marine life. So in this map around 40 million years ago, which was the main period um, that they found the evidence for whale fossils here is from around 40, 44 million or something to 33 million. And um, that gray area um, shows you the coastal areas, okay? And we find a lot of um, fossils that are related to more um, seabed kind of creatures as well in, in that area, especially in Giza, as we'll see. So, the interesting part is, like I mentioned, we have different sorts of fossils in this country. And so they kind of show the evolution of the planet and the evolution of the planet obviously happened over a great period of <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. That's my dog, he never leaves me alone. Um, <laughs> so, um, basically, the, the whale bones that they have found here in Egypt, they were evidence of the whales from when they moved from these types of whales, the ones that used to walk on, on land and they had, you know, legs. Um, and then they took the next step into becoming more aquatic creatures. So some, sometimes they still had hind legs and occasionally walked on the earth, especially to give birth. Um, over 12 million years, um, they went through multiple adaptations and became more marine-based and fully aquatic. So the fossils found in Egypt are of these prehistoric whales, um, which show that evolutionary link, but more so... Um, not this one specifically, but I guess the next step up, which um, still kind of had um, flippers that had five fingers. Um, their hind legs were sort of subtracted 
Um, but they they were the link between these whales or these prehistoric whales and I guess what we now know as our whales. So here I've got an example of the different, um, you know, mammals. Um, and what I've circled there is kind of what you're going to find in Wadi Alkitan. So they lived in between the first and second age. So the first age was like 49 million years ago when the climates were quite warm and that helped their ancestors spread around the coastal areas. So uh, Egypt, we're looking at that period of 47 to, you know, oh, 44 to 33, let's say. Um, the second period, the climate changed and it became cooler. And this is when, you know, we started to see the development of more the whales that we know today. So this is one of the prehistoric beasts that um, we found here in Egypt, the Dorogen. Um, this is an ancestral well from the late Eocene period. These were smaller, earlier known wells. They were about three to five metres in length uh, or up to 16 feet. Um, some people call them maybe an earlier version of dolphins, I guess. Um, their name means spear tooth. They, all of these whales and creatures had, um, you know, quite sharp teeth compared to uh, the whales we have today. Um, and they lived from 40 to 33.9 million years ago. They ate small fish and lived in warm uh, seas around the world in the Thethys uh, Sea which was pretty much Northern Africa and Southern Europe as we know it today. And then we had this little guy, well, actually it wasn't that little, <laughs> um, the Basilosaurus, uh, that was also the other ancient well that you can find here in Egypt. Um, these were large, they were the top predators um, in the area and they inhabited um, in our region, uh, Egypt, Jordan, Tunisia, uh, Morocco, and pretty much uh, anywhere in the northern coast of Africa. So their name means King Lizard, and they lived from about 41 to 33 million years ago. Now, they preyed on sharks, large fish, and other mammals, including um, the Durandan, which was in the previous image, and that was actually their main food source. So these guys average between 15 to 20 metres long or 49 to 66 feet. And they weren't as nice and cuddly as, as modern tail whales, I can assure you. So what happened to these creatures? Where did they go? You know, did they just evolve? Obviously, there was a change in temperatures. Um, which did cause, uh, you know, an evolutionary change again. So whilst there isn't 
you know, a certain explanation for this. Uh, there's also, there's a lot of theories and, and always there's a lot of theories when we're looking back so far in time. Um, it's never 100% concrete proof because this happened, you know, 33.9 million years ago. I mean, that's unimaginable <laughs> amount of time. Um, so, but the two, the, the theories that they have are either volcanic activity because the planet had a lot of volcanic activity during that time or a meteor impact and either or could have caused a sudden climate change in the sense of cooling. And so then that would have obviously changed um, the habitats of all the creatures on the planet. So, like I mentioned, Wadi al-Hitam um, is a very, very special place. Not many people go there. It's, it's quite far. It's very hard to get to. Um, years ago, they only had four-wheel drives going out there. I had the pleasure of going out there with my husband last year in October. Uh, we went with a local tour group, so I was the token foreigner. <laughs> um, in the group, which was fine. Um, the tour guide could speak English a little bit and my husband translated what he was saying, so it was, it was great. But uh, there's no other place on earth that yields the number, the concentration and the quality of prehistoric whales and marine fossils as Wadi al-Hitam. And this is such an interesting place because it's completely out in the desert and yet there's whale bones. Originally, um, I think it was around 1902 that the first um, people found the whale bones in the area. And obviously because of um, its remote location, uh, no one really went out there again to do proper research until around the 1980s. Now, that left about 80 years of, uh, uh, you know, sadly people going out there and taking whale bones, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think they've found over 1,500 fossils, but realistically uh, only about 100 or so have been documented um, because some of them were taken off-site, obviously. What happened to them? I don't know. I guess they were sold or I can't really say. Um, it's a pity, though. Um, so if we're looking at the map here, um, there's Cairo at the top. That, where that little star is, I guess, is uh, Giza, Giza Plateau, which is where I live. And we're looking at about 150 kilometres or 90 miles from Cairo in the Western Desert. So as you can see, it's in a very, very remote place. Now, that place next to it, Wadi al-Rayyan, is actually a natural reserve. So when you're driving out there, like I said, usually you need a four-wheel drive. We went on a special type bus which had like very, I don't know, um, four-wheel drive-ish kind of wheels, you know, with brake shockers. But um, it's it's a really long drive from 
Cairo out there and even driving through Wadi Al Rayyan is like an hour or two hours. Um, and Wadi Al Rayyan is a very beautiful, um, uh, you know, natural reserve. There is a waterfall there. Regrettably, we haven't been there yet. Um, the Fayoum region is is enormous and there's a lot of stuff to see there, but unfortunately a lot of that stuff is really dispersed. So to give you an idea, within this area we have uh, three pyramids, um, we have some temples as well, but they're all located, um, you know, about an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes two hours apart. So um, again, this is not a region that a lot of people go to for that reason because everything is just so far from each other. It's a long trip. Um, it's better to just go down there, stay there for a few days and, you know, target one or two places. So what we did when we went out there was um, we left on Friday morning, which is our, our, the start of our weekend, and... Um, we drove down there, um, went to the museum. We slept out in Wadi Al Hitan under the stars. They erected some tents and built a fire. Um, we did some stargazing at night. I can't say that we really slept, but, you know, it was a great experience. And then the next morning we drove back to Cairo because to go out there for one day and come back, it's really exhausting. It's just too far. It's about four hours drive all up just because the roads are not fantastic. So here they found hundreds of um, fossils from the earliest forms of whales. So these were the ones that actually became the aquatic creatures. And there's a picture of um, one of them down there. He doesn't look very friendly at all. Um, and the area provides millions of years of coastal marine life fossils. So that's quite interesting because, as I said, you know, things developed and evolved over a long period of time. Um, even, you know, within one species, it was about 12 million years of evolution before it went from one type to another. Uh, so... It is the most important site in the world providing evidence of the evolution of whales. It provides evidence of their transition from land animals to marine creatures. And that's quite, you know, interesting and important. So here are some images of um, Wadi Alhi town. Aside from obviously having the whales in the desert, which is already quite unique, um, you know, it has beautiful cliffs and scenery and you can observe a lot of water erosion there. So these are just some of the images that I took whilst we were there um, overnight. And so they built a museum on site um, to preserve... Um, uh, well, to preserve, you know, these whale bones, like I said, there was a lot of um, people that came and took a lot of them off-site. Um, it did become registered as a Unisanko site not that long ago, mind you. But um, So this is still a relatively new museum. It's quite small, um, but, you know, it's uh, it has some very interesting 
and probably some of the better preserved uh, whale bones um, in that middle center there. And as you can see, they were quite big and uh, they had quite sharp teeth. <laughs> now, some of the other um, marine animals that were there were things like crocodiles, um, stingrays, um, you know, other large fish, uh, sharks as well. Here we're looking at a prehistoric crocodile skull. Now, interestingly, the crocodiles have probably, they haven't gone for as much evolution as um, most of the other, you know, animals and, and life forms on this planet, which makes them kind of unique. However, you know, they did go through some form of evolution from the period when these whales lived to uh, the Nile crocodiles that we have today. And then, so here, the two pictures, um, the left one and the one in the middle, these are from outside in Wadi Al-Hitan. So in the left picture, you're looking at kind of like a cliff and on top of the cliff, um, sort of snaked around it, is uh, the whalebone. So those white pieces are, are the whalebones. And, you know, you've got to remember that um, all of these were seabeds, essentially. And so um, well, I guess the whale died on, on that ridge and, you know, that, that's where it remained until the water receded and then it was exposed to the desert. Um, and then in the middle we have the, the smaller form that I showed you earlier. Uh, the ones that were only about three to five metres, um, the Dorid. Okay. And then on the right, um, that's just more images, um, a close-up image, um, part of the backbone of um, one of the whales found there, probably one that was a lot better preserved. And the giant skull in the background is pretty cool too. <laughs> so this is kind of like an artist's rendition of what the area would have looked like during that time, which is um, quite interesting, especially if you go out there now and it's completely desert, um, to think that at one point it was a sea inlet and, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was vegetation and, and marshes and things like that. Uh, it's kind of unimaginable now if you go out there. And as you can see, the size difference between the two as well. Um, so, again, you know, um, the, the smaller one was basically preyed upon by the larger one, which is usually the case. So the number lights... Um, I'm not sure if uh, people have heard of this. I have a couple of them at home um, that an archaeologist gave uh, gave me from the Giza Plateau because um, in certain areas of the Giza Plateau, you can literally, as you're walking in the sand, you can scoop up a bit of sand and, and you'll find these in there. 
So there's um, millions of them everywhere. So namalites are dish-shaped um, and they're commonly found anywhere from Luxor to Giza and that's a pretty vast area. Um, and often coat the desert floor in areas like Fayum and Giza Plateau in certain areas. Uh, but in Giza, these are predominantly found in the rock structures. So a lot of the Giza Plateau is natural limestone rock um, and a lot of that was quarried for construction. And within that, you find, you find these um, namalites. Um, so the meaning of the name, it's uh, Latin for coin because they're coin-shaped, they're very flat. Um, and these lived in shallower waters. So again, if we remember the map that I showed at the start, um, the grey areas were more um, the coastal seabed areas, okay? So even though it was a sea inlet, um, the water came in, um, you know, quite far into the country, but, you know, these prehistoric creatures and stuff used to hang around um, more in the sea part and in the oceans. But these little critters, um, they were predominantly found in more of the shallower areas. So what's interesting about um, the nummulites is that uh, they were single-celled organisms and they reached up to six centimetres, sometimes more. I think the biggest one that they found was about 10 centimetres. Um, these are flat shells from the Eocene era and over millions of years, the shells piled up creating the limestone rock, which they quarried to build uh, the pyramids, for example. Now, the Nummelites were first noted inside the Great Pyramid structure by Herodotus in the 5th century BC and he was the one that actually named them, gave them this name. Originally, um, I think uh, in, in those times, in the 5th century BC, the Egyptians, uh, you know, told the travellers that these were coins that were traded for lentils. I don't think that's true. I haven't really heard that in, you know, ancient history. Um, I think they just made that up. <laughs> but anyway, the name, you know, Nemolites does mean, you know, coins and therefore the association. I think at that time he was not aware that they were, you know, marine fossils. So going on to the Giza Plateau, uh, fossils on the Giza Plateau. This has really interested me a great deal because it's not something that I ever thought of uh, when I used to visit here. And when you go on the Giza Plateau for the first time, obviously you're in awe with the pyramids and the most people would just 
visit the pyramids and I would visit the Sphinx. Um, not really going inside any of the tombs. There's over 6,000 tombs on the plateau. And there's areas that you can't really go to anyway because, um, you know, they're restricted areas. There's places where they're still working and excavating. Um, they're looking at tombs. Uh, they're looking at opening some tombs at some point. I don't know when now. Um, it was... There was meant to be some work happening this year, but obviously with the coronavirus, I don't think that's going to happen. So that's been a little bit delayed. Um, but there's still a lot to be found on the plateau. But so when you go there, you know, initially you are looking at the pyramids and the tombs, etc., and you're not really paying attention to the bedrock. And there is a lot of bedrock, you know, just there but you know I happen to live next to the Giza Plateau so now I have the opportunity to go down there and just you know walk around for six hours um, and when you walk around for six hours and, and you grab one of the archaeologists as well to walk around with you you get to go to different areas where the tourists generally don't go and then in these places is what, you know, you're, where you're going to find all these sea fossils. So here um, I found this uh, beautiful specimen uh, in a rock bed. And the rock bed was uh, next to a tomb, but this was not part of the tomb. Um, it was just a rock bed outcrop on the Giza Plateau. And when I noticed this, I, I just became absolutely fascinated with the fact that there were so many fossils uh, just lying around, you know, Egypt. So this is um, a petrified exoskeleton of an echinoid, which was a shallow marine creature. Okay. Now, this is not the only one that you can find there. Um, there's been a few archaeologists that have worked on the Giza Plateau on this. And uh, look, uh, they have different theories on, on the dating. And who's to say then they're wrong or right? Uh, realistically speaking, um, when you're looking at stuff like the Nummelites, they're definitely prehistoric. But then, you know, who's to say that this, this piece specifically wasn't from a later period? Obviously, a lot has changed um, since 33.9 million years ago. Um, the seas receded. There could have been more flooding at, you know, some other point, which would have then brought more of these creatures in. But the point is uh, they are embedded in the bedrock, meaning that, um, you know, these were part of the the formation of the mud sediment, which became hard as the seas receded and they got stuck in it. So because it is a kind of soft and, and, and brittle, as you can see from the image, over time, um, you know, sediments do come loose and then they expose these beautiful specimens. So this is inside a tomb 
um, not a very awesome tomb. There was no hieroglyphs or anything like that in there. But it was cut into the bedrock. And it might be a little bit hard to see in this image, um, but there is a lot of uh, nummelites, so ancient prehistoric seashells um, within the bedrock. And it's very dark in there, so I wasn't able to get a, a very good photo of it. And here's another tomb. Okay. This one actually does have hieroglyphs and um, it's pretty amazing. It's quite small though. It's um, obviously not for a pharaoh. But um, the ceiling, because this was cut into um, into the bedrock as well. So in the ceiling, when I looked up, I could see, you know, a bunch of these summer lights and you can see them in the image uh, in the on the left-hand side, and then on the right-hand side, you can see how, you know, they plastered the walls and whatever, but the ceiling is still rough and original bedrock, okay? They just kind of smoothed it over, but a lot of these number lights are actually exposed. So all of this has now really opened my eyes when I go into these tombs, and I'm really, it's not just looking at, you know, the ancient history or from or the Egyptian history, but it's also looking at, I guess, the geology of where this tomb is and what it offers. So this is uh, inside one of the satellite pyramids next to the Great Pyramid. So again, um, they, the the, the so-called burial chamber was dug underground and then, you know, um, they added blocks and whatever inside. But if you look at the walls and the ceiling, again, you're going to find the ancient prehistoric seashells within it. So it's, it's something that is all over the Giza Plateau and not just very random. And that offers so much of an insight into what the landscape of this country would have looked like um, all those millions of years ago. Now, here's something that I didn't even know. <laughs> so this was kind of new to me when I was doing the research and with very good reason. Um, so there's these nummelites are present in the lower section of the, of the Sphinx. Okay, so if you look at the picture um, within the picture, it shows you the soil sediment layers and the bottom one is actually shoal reef. So this part specifically had um, more nummelites in it. Okay, um, so this part of the limestone is, is known as the Mokotan Formation and um, it's from a period about 50 million years ago when the sea re retreated. Um, okay. Now, the sad part about it is that uh, that is specifically the area that they decided to, um, I guess, restore. And so that's now covered in um, 
restoration work and you can't actually see the original. But the Sphinx itself is cut out of one single bedrock, okay? Um, and, of course, you know, there's different theories. Uh, when, when I was doing this research, there was um, the theories discussed of um, the ageing of the Sphinx and, you know, geologists heavily debated. Robert Chalk dated it to, um, you know, almost 10,000 years ago or 9,500 um, or more. Um, but, you know, conventional archaeology is 4,500. Now, that's not to say when the limestone was formed, that's just when they believe the Sphinx was carved. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, a pity that they covered up the area that actually showed a lot of these number lights. So now this piece here, um, this piece is from part of uh, the Great Pyramid. So I guess this is another thing that, you know, most people are going to miss because they're not really looking at the blocks that close up. They're interested about going inside the pyramids. They're interested about the structure outside of the pyramids, but not to this close-up level. Um, again, because uh, I live here and I get to go on the Giza Plateau fairly often, not these days, but um, generally speaking, you do get to notice things that you miss the first, uh, 5th, 16th and 100th time <laughs> that you go on the Giza Plateau. So there's really a lot to see there and a lot to observe. Um, and knowing that, I can now sort of understand why, um, you know, Egyptologists or archaeologists go and work in a specific area for 20 years uh, because there's just a lot of information just in one little tiny spot. So both the Sphinx and Great Pyramid contain thousands of these marine fossils, as you can see um, from... Uh, that's not my foot. That is an undergrad from Berkeley, um, Lorraine Casesa, and uh, she was granted permission to do some work here in, in the Red Sea uh, looking for these types of fossils. So Giza and Fayum. Fayum is the region that I mentioned earlier uh, where we have the Valley of the Wales, um, and even Abydos has limestone with these nummerites present in them. Now, that gives us a really good perspective of the construction material that was used um, in the construction of the Sphinxes out of bedrock, but the Great Pyramid specifically, you know, they used limestone from the region as well as, um, you know, bits and pieces from elsewhere, but... Um, now, knowing that, you know, the argument that um, uh, the blocks were moulded, you know, that definitely doesn't sit well with me because, you know, you could say I read a research paper that said that, um, you know, they just used these normal lights in, in, within the concrete 
it's not concrete, by the way. So, you know, it's limestone. Um, that's the first problem. And secondly, I think if you heated it and melted it, then it's not going to be perfectly preserved like this. And there's so much of it everywhere on the Giza Plateau. Like I said, it's in the bedrock. You go inside the tombs that were cut into bedrock and it's there. That just doesn't make sense to me anyway, that, you know, the blocks were moulded. It's a little bit off topic, sorry. So here we go. This is um, a block from the Great Pyramid. So the majority of the stone blocks used to build the pyramids are rock called nummulitic limestone, which means that the limestone contains a lot of nummulites in it. So the blocks in the Great Pyramid has an observed 40% nummulite makeup, which is actually quite interesting. And, you know, I myself didn't... Uh, didn't really know this much about it. Um, I found a few number like in, in, in the coin forms and, you know, a few sea creatures here and there, but I never really looked at um, each of the stones or the blocks within the pyramids that closely. Um, obviously, as soon as the Giza Plateau opens, which should be next week, but I'm also pregnant, so I'm not allowed to go anywhere <laughs> at the moment. But, you know, once we're over that, you know, hurdle, I would like to go back and, and spend a lot more time on the Giza Plateau and really look at all of the blocks and document this more. So Richard, the research has shown that the limestone used in many ancient constructions contain nummulites. And like I said, they have found traces all the way to Luxor. And that's pretty far. I think it's... Uh, Roughly about 500 kilometres from Cairo to Luxor, something like that. It's about an hour flight. Now, this was another interesting thing that I found, and it's very, very random. Um, <laughs> there's, realistically, this is all the information that um, you're going to find in the article about it. So there was... Uh, a fossil found on top of the Great Pyramid, Great Pyramid of Giza. Now, this is one of the earliest artefacts donated to the Grand Lodge Library and Museum around 1886. So we're, we're talking about the Freemasons here. These guys came here, they explored, they took stuff home, um, and they found this piece um, somewhere on top of the pyramid. Now, the, the, the person, uh, R.W. Charles, uh, he didn't actually, like, specify whether this is the, how he found it in this intact form or whether it was later cut. He just donated it as is. Um, so it measures about uh, 1.2 to 5.5. 5.3 centimetres, so it's not a huge piece, um, but it has uh, some type of uh, fossils of sea creatures in it, as you can see, and it's actually a, a pretty beautiful specimen, if you ask me, um, and it's a pity that it's stuck somewhere in, you know, a Grand Lodge library and museum where no one can really see it except for 
that Mason lies in New York. So, with the seashells and nummelites, um, like I said, you can find this stuff all over Egypt if you really go looking for it. Um, the other thing that's also very prominent on, on the ground in Egypt is, is uh, broken bits of pottery. You're going to find millions and millions and millions of pieces of that everywhere. Um, the archaeologists took all the good pieces and left, um, you know, the rest of it just there on, on the floor. But mixed in between that, you're going to find seashells and nummelites in other parts of Egypt. So here are some that I randomly found. Um, so this is Hawara. Hawara is in the Fayum region. It's one of the three pyramids that I mentioned earlier in the Fayum region. It's about 108 kilometers from Cairo. Now this pyramid is currently flooded on the inside. Um, I had the opportunity of going inside a few meters, uh, when was it? I think in February. And uh, there was meant to be a team coming um, later this year to start draining the water out of the pyramid. But I think that work again has been stalled now because of the coronavirus. So um, I found these seashells there. Now, these seashells don't look ancient to me. They look more modern. And this is why, you know, some archaeologists argue that um, uh, some of these fossils are from, you know, different periods of time. They're not all from prehistoric Egypt. Um, I would think that these would be more, you know, from a recent time. And at Hawara, at the back there, um, near that canal, you're going to find a lot of these, okay? So they're all there in the mud sediment, as you can see. There's also said to be a labyrinth under that pyramid. And it's not very well excavated. There's bits and pieces of, you know, columns and things that are sticking out of, um, uh, out of the sediment and sand there. So hopefully a team will get down there at some point soon and, you know, really do a lot of work. So this is our Lahorn Pyramid. This is also in the Bayum region, um, but this one is about 130 kilometres from Cairo, so it's a little bit further out. And again, um, randomly found seashells there in the desert also. So uh, Al Lahun Pyramid, interestingly, is a mud brick pyramid and the pyramid structure and tunnels are dug underneath into the bedrock and then the mud brick, mud brick pyramid built over the top. So it's not like the Great Pyramid it, um, or any of the ones on the Giza Plateau, Saqqara, etc. These ones were in a later period and, in my opinion, a little, more, a little bit more lazy construction because they just, you know, dug into the ground and then 
bottom-up infrastructure over the top. Despite that, El Lahun is still an interesting pyramid to go and visit. It has probably one of the best uh, sarcophagus I've seen, the most highly polished in the world. So, yes, like I said, you know, right now, um, all of the sites have been closed for a long time since uh, probably the end of March. Um, they're now going to start opening some of the sites as of 1st of July. Um, places like the Giza Plateau, the Egyptian Museum, Harnack and Philae Temple, and uh, I think Corgata Museum, which is a new museum they're going to open either this week or, or, or next week. But um, it, it's it's been hard, you know, sitting at home and not being able to explore the country, especially when there is so much, um, you know, to see, uh, I've been spending a lot of time just thinking about, uh, you know, where to go and making plans of, you know, road trips uh, to different regions to really explore it. Um, we really wanted to go back to Wadi Al-Hitam as well um, this year. I don't think that's going to be feasible for us uh, this year, but you know, uh, it would be really good to go back there and really explore the place a little bit more. Um, even just, you know, the whale valley where you find the, the whale bones, it's such a huge site. You know, the, the whale bones are not like right next to each other. You have to walk a great distance. And I don't think we really had the opportunity to see all of them last time um, just because it was getting dark by the time, you know, we reached about halfway. So all of these places, they require an enormous amount of time um, to look at. And I guess the unfortunate thing is there hasn't been a huge amount of research done on the area. Um, from this perspective, uh, because everybody focuses uh, more on, you know, uh, ancient Egyptian history. I mean, that's pretty interesting and powerful, obviously. Uh, but the prehistoric side is also very interesting. And there's, there's a few guys that have looked at it. And so they have varying theories. But it would be nice if there was more research done into it, especially by uh, more geologists. And maybe, I don't know, marine biologists as well, because the, the, the region is still quite rich in, in different types of marine fossils from different periods. Um, and I would love to go out to the desert areas one day and um, go look at those dinosaur bones as well. Um, some of that area also has uh, prehistoric um, fossils as well lying about but um yeah it's uh it's not a place that i've been able to get to so far so that is um yeah that was only about an hour sorry about that <laughs> you have any questions <laughs> i think it was fantastic uh i find it just mind-blowing that uh there's not 
any more information out there uh, about these fossils. You know, I first came across uh, this information about um, two or three years ago. I was watching this documentary. Maybe it was a little bit longer than that, but I was watching this documentary. Uh, it was about two hours long, and um, you know, they were going through the same procedure as you just did by uh, you know showing us all these uh, microfossils and uh, whale fossils and fish fossils, and they had a really good theory as to uh, you know how these fish got there. But you know, what's really surprising to me is uh, like I said, that you don't hear too much of this in, uh, you know, from Egyptologists or, uh, you know, uh, researchers that, uh, that have gone to Egypt, uh, like, you know, the ones that are like in our genre, you know, you figure they would be just all over this as, uh, you know, this is uh, pretty prudent information because it really gives us a, uh, a guesstimate uh, into, I guess, almost like, you know, when these pyramids may have been built. Right. I think it's, you know, the, some of those fossils, I, I think I saw one or two of those pictures before, but it might have been when you and I were talking about it at one point and you showed me the pictures. I'm not sure because it was a while ago. But it's just crazy. <clears throat> I had made a comment in the, in the chat saying, you know, the world must have been a completely different looking place, especially in Egypt when that far, you know, uh, I guess that's south or north, south of uh, Cairo, where it was way out in the, what was today is the desert, right? And you, there's whale fossils. Yeah. Right? Isn't that crazy? So mm. that kind of place. They, the sea can be fairly, um, yeah. <laughs> See, the, what I was going to say is that plays into uh, a lot of the theories that that uh, it is, it is uh, the, that whole area was a lush rainforest at one time. You know, if you look, if you look at what they're finding out there in the middle of what today is a desert, it looks like at one time it was as lush a uh, greenery as, say, the North American continent is today. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, and that would really go to uh, explain the uh, the water damage that uh, we find on the Sphinx. Right, and that is the theory of, of that. I've talked to. Stephen Myers about it. I've talked to uh, who else that uh, I talked to about that. I can't think of, of who else. John uh, a couple of people that are there all the time, besides Ildi, of course, because she's always there. Um, <laughs> and, and the say the same thing. They, say, they all say the same thing. That obviously there was a lush rainforest here at one time, if not oceans. Isn't that crazy? So Ildi, what is your like your conclusion as to you know like how this sea was there? Uh, to begin with, you know, there had to have been, you know, the seed in the desert and some sort of shift happened well, where... Well, we're talking... Uh, well, it, it, this was like, uh, you know, the prehistoric stuff was, you know, 40 to 33 million years ago. That's a long time ago. And I'm fairly certain that the planet has gone through a lot of different changes since then, you know, um, looking at those maps at the start, you know, the, the continents were completely different to what they are now. Um, you know, the plates shifted. There was a lot of volcanic activity that also impacted on, you know, uh, how the landscape looked on the planet. So, you know, even though that stuff is from the prehistoric area, who knows what happened in between then and, you know, even to more... Um, closer to our history line, 
right. because ancient Egypt, you know, wasn't, uh, I guess, um, as as a desert as it is now, um, you know, in my backyard, <laughs> uh, it was a lot more lush. So, but it could have gone for a lot of different periods of change. Um, and I guess this is why it's so interesting, you know, and why I think more people, you know, like geologists need to come here and actually have a look at the different regions to see what they can find because um, it's great that in Wadi Al-Hitan they have found so much evidence, but there's, you know, when I fly from, uh, when I fly from Luxor to Cairo and I look out the plane window, the desert to me kind of reminds me of the Grand Canyon, you know, the canals. Mm-hmm. And it's just desert. So and there's nothing there. There's nobody there. So nobody goes out there to look at anything. God knows what could be out there. <laughs> well, you know, it is that way here anything. in the United States, too. People don't realize that from Texas all the way to the coast of California, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California down at the southern end, is a complete desert the entire way. People don't realize that. Sorry, I had to mute my phone. Oh, I flew over. I actually flew from Houston to California and looked out the window, and um, I was like, oh, wow, this is uh, it's a big desert. That's all it is. is. I live in the area. Of it. I, was, I used to live in Arizona. <laughs> Crazy. And you're right. Nobody wants to go out there. And there's so much stuff out in that desert. You know, the, the guys, uh, the, the rock hounds were out there, you know, looking for the Dutchman's mine, you know. Uh, in Arizona, and the natives mm. are like, don't go there, you know, and <laughs> there's natives are just have so many stories. There's just nothing out there. But, you know, the weird thing is being a prepper, which I'm here, I am, you know, getting a little early into the prepping thing. But when I moved there, my buddy who lives out here in California said to me, man, you better start stocking up on food because when, if the world gets, you know, goes, the, you know, the poop hits the fan, you're going to starve to death. You're in the middle of a desert. Mm. And I, you know, I thought, well, I mean, he's right. I better look this up. I looked it up and found out there's more food in that desert than there is anywhere near in the city. Wild food. Asparagus grows wild. Everything grows wild out there in the desert. You have no idea. Water is the only thing that you have to worry about. And Arizona and I'm sure New Mexico and parts of Texas, they reclaim 100% of all the water. So that, you know, when there's monsoons, so they have water all year round. It's not hard to get water out there. And you would think that it would be, but it's not. There's a lot of cactus out there with a lot of water in it. So yeah, I'm just going to say that. Know, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say that you can find a lot of water in cactuses. If you're stuck out there, just break one open and boom, you got, uh, you know. Yeah, good you can eat most of them. I learned that water out here in California when the Mexicans would grab a cactus and hawk a piece off and take the skin off of it and put it on the griddle. I'm like, what is he doing? Like, He's yeah, going to put it on the burger. Yeah, yeah, you can <laughs> eat it as well. I forgot what the dish is called, but uh, yeah. it's uh, perfectly edible. Yep. Now, just to, uh, just to go back. Uh, to what Ildi was saying mm-hmm. earlier with the uh, 30 to uh, 40 million uh, year timeline, mm-hmm. you know, for me, that uh, actually is a huge clue as to the origins of the pyramids. You know, I've always been the proponent of the fact that, you know, the current, uh, you know, Egyptian civilization that we have, like the pharaohs and such that we've had, that they discovered these pyramids and then repurpose them. Maybe they renovated some of them and then they repurpose them. But the, you know, for me, I feel that the actual builders of the pyramids would be, you know, in the root races of humanity. So when we go back and look at the root races, you know, we see the Hyperboreans, right? Now the Hyperboreans, they were like a, uh, you know, a body and a light body. They were like halfway there. 
right? And then also there were giants and they existed about 40 million years ago, right? So I wonder if there's any sort of, you know, connection between the Hyperborean root race and, uh, and, and, the, and the pyramids and the Sphinx and such, right? Because we know the weather back in those days was radically different to what it is today. Sorry, go ahead, Ildi. I think, I think geologically, probably not, because um, all of that um, sediment was from, you know, that period. So that means it was under sea and in that period. And, and there's right. ge geological evidence that the whole of Africa was under the water at that point. So, you know, probably not in that timeline. Um, there is evidence of different, you know, human civilizations uh, throughout Egypt. There's cave paintings here as well that, you know, they're also out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Um, there's the kind of places that I, I want to go to one day as well. I guess we're going to have to buy a Land Rover or something like a four-wheel drive because <laughs> they're not, you know, there's no roads and they're very quite inaccessible. <laughs> um, but... Like I said at the start, Egypt is a very unique country in that um, there's a lot of evidence from different periods of, of mm. you know, living things on this planet, not just humanoids, um, but other living things and how they evolved. Um, and even up until, you know, more recent times, like you guys said, yes, um, Egypt was a lot more lush. Uh, and, you know, like I showed at, at the beginning, they found petrified wood um, mm -hmm. in the desert and also there's a place um, here in Cairo as well where they have it. Um, and, you know, prior to that, they found, um, you know, land fossils in rocks, which is even, you know, before then. But there's still a lot of water underground. Um, I'm yeah. sure you know that... Uh, in 2015, they were draining the water out from underneath the Sphinx mm -hmm. on the Giza right. Plateau. Right. So, um, and this area used to get flooded, um, you know, every quite year. close to, yeah, every year, quite close to the pyramids up yep. until the 1960s when they built the Aswan Dam. So there is still a lot of water around, even in the Fayum region, you know, Wadi Al Ryan. There's a waterfall there in the middle of the desert. <laughs> right? Yeah. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, when I was talking to Stephen Myers, he told me that the that the uh, part of the, the where the waterfall was used to flood and it used to come right next to the pyramids and come right through yeah. that area, like where the Sphinx is today. The flooding used to flood right through there all the time. That's where the a lot of the Egyptologists say that. They, they say there wasn't a lush rainforest there, but that was from those floods that the erosion happened on the Sphinx. And that's very possible because it did flood there, and they know that. Well, yeah. You know, um, right? I mean, we don't know whether the um, Sphinx, the, then, the, you know, the, the water in the, the Sphinx was either so I'm not or sure, flooding, right? Uh, how... Um, how far it came in, but there are some beautiful old photos um, that show, you know, that there was lakes, I guess, close to uh, the pyramids, literally like well, where we live now. Modern era, they have photos of that lakes near there. Really? Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, wow, from that's the. Cool. I did not know that. No, yeah, 1902, uh, those sorts of time periods. There was um, photos of it because the 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 city um, or the suburb around the pyramids. This area was built up probably like in the last 30 years, and it was families building family houses, and then more people came and built their, you know. So this area was still classed as a village. There was a village here and desert, and it was the start of the Western Desert. Um, and now it's now we have, I think, about a quarter of a million people living just in this suburb. Wow. Um, something crazy like that. But it's a big suburb. It's not like, you know, but, yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, high-rise buildings where people live. And so another, another interesting thing to note is that, um, you know, there's a lot of um, fresh water uh, beneath uh, the uh, Sahara Desert because of the fact mm. that uh, the desert floor is uh, very porous. So mm. all that water rain anything that happens all that water is dripped into the uh you know into the underground chambers and uh you know if my memory serves me correct it was uh, in the early to mid to, uh, you know 2000s when Muammar Gaddafi uh spent about a billion dollars in um in, in pulling the water out from uh, from the desert to uh, give to his people right and uh so i found that to be really interesting the, from the stats that I heard, was that there's more fresh water uh, beneath the uh, the desert than there is uh, all the freshwater lakes combined in the world. Is what's underneath Egypt right now? Yeah, probably. My my favorite water brand comes from um, a deep well somewhere in a place that north of Cairo somewhere. So all of that region I just call the Nile Delta. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, that's where the Nile branches off. Um, I think, uh, the you know, not long ago you posted a, an image of um, the Nile and how it sort of branched off yeah. and I said it looks like a lotus flower. That's right. I was saying it looks like a volcano going up, and then you were like, no, no, it looks like a lotus flower, buddy. And I was like, yeah, yeah, thanks yeah. <laughs> So somewhere in that region um, is where the water that I drink comes from. Um, there's also another one which is called flow water, which is alkaline water that's coming somewhere from Giza. Um, you know, my, my joke is about that water. It's, it's like for local water, it's actually expensive. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about like... Uh, I don't know, 12 pound for, you know, a 600 ml bottle, which, um, I mean, depending where you buy it, I suppose, let's say six to 10 pounds, uh, US, that's like 50 cents. So for you guys, it would be like nothing. But, you know, here we can buy bottles of water from about two, three pounds. Um, so it's expensive in, in that sense. But, uh, you know, I always joke that it's blessed because it comes from Giza, so the water runs underneath the pyramids. I don't know if it does, though. That's just right. a joke. Well, you know, it's expensive here, too, for that water, so I make my own, and it doesn't cost me very much. Yeah, it's, it's expensive. Uh, from rainwater? No, no, the alkaline water. 
the alkaline water that they oh, make okay. is expensive here too, but I make my own alkaline water and it doesn't cost very much for me to make it. Pretty expensive for water up here. We pay, uh, you know, about $3.50 for a uh, 600 milliliter <laughs> bottle yeah. or like a 300 milliliter bottle. It's just, uh, it's just stupidly expensive and uh, really not even worth uh, buying it. The bonus thing about this where I live is uh, in the early 1980s, they removed fluoride out of the uh, city water here. Right, I so out of my water because they don't here. They still have water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So most out of my water. I don't drink. I don't drink the tap water even here. I'm in. I'm in the state capital of California, and I filter the water to drink. And I don't even. Don't even get near that stuff. Yeah, I, I hardly drink water. You know, the only yeah. time I'll drink water is in my coffee, or um. I use filtered water to make ice. I use filtered water to make my coffee. I even give the animals filtered water. I don't give them tap water. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I drink filtered water. Yeah. It's, 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 I, my, my one cat, uh, Patch, the biggest one, he's my Siberian. He won't drink the other water because it has a different smell. He, if I pour it in his thing, he'll look at it and he only drink it if he's like dying. Yeah. <laughs> he'll say, he'll go, what are you giving me this for? Right. He wants the cold water that's out of the filter. <laughs> so nice. Andy, I, got a, I got a question for you from our viewer about Matt. I Gold. see. Uh, he says, uh, animal heads on human bodies or human heads mm. on animal bodies, quote, is it possible that we are hybrids between animals and angels in that we are subject to both behaviors? Great question. That would have been more suited for me. <laughs> Symbolically speaking, um, you know, uh, I would say no because it was a representation of something. But realistically speaking, I don't think anyone could know because there is such a huge missing link in our timeline. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I can't really say yes or no to that at all. And to to be fair from, you know, I mean, uh, Stephen and Evan are going to be on your show later today and they're going to be discussing the skulls and how, mm -hmm. you know, well, the Australian government doesn't really want them to be researched. So mm -hmm. if we're having that sort of mentality from the governments where they don't even want to understand what, what you know, different, um, you know, uh, skulls and bone structures are that they find, uh, then we're never going to know. We're, uh, yeah, like I said, you know, even between, you know, 33.9 million and now, that's a huge chunk of time. I mean, just the last 2,000 years has been so different and then the last, you know, 6,000 years before that was so different. And that's pretty much all that we can technically trace back um, with evidence that we have now. What happened prior to that is really anyone's guess, aside from fossils that, you know, people have found and have tested and have researched. Well, you know, they did that with the elongated skull forever all over the world. They they would confiscate them, not just in Australia, but here in America and South America and, you know, everywhere, wherever they found them and uncovered them, they were just, con they'd come in and confiscate them. The governments of the place or the American government would show up, you know, the cabal would show up and take the stuff and wouldn't let us have any of the history. That's, I think that's, that's something that they did on purpose to get rid of the history. So we don't know what happened more than, mm. more than 2000 years ago, you know? No, for myself, 
for myself on uh, Matt's question, you know, I would uh, I would have to go with Ildi um, as well because there is uh, you know just a huge chunk of time missing to where you know we don't have the information to collaborate on you know what we're you know what we what our hypothesis is as to you know half man half animal you know that could really mean anything it could mean that uh, you know an animal is a projection of a human as a human is a projection of an animal or uh, you know it could be you know just like really anything so really the ball is up in the air when it uh, you know comes to something like that um, well, look at our species in general, just living on this planet. We have a, a, a ton, almost all of our physiology is, is is the same as animals. Lungs, heart, kidney, liver. You know, we have all of the internal organs the same. Our blood is almost exactly like, like pig blood, mm -hmm. right? And, and our hemoglobin is almost exactly like that from uh, the sponge in the sea and the, uh, um, uh, what is it, the jellyfish. Mm -hmm. So, there's so much about our body that we are in that is pieces of everything here that you could almost say we're the petri dish, we're the like English is to the world languages. We there is not a word I'm speaking to you that was original. It's a it's a word that's been borrowed from all the languages in Europe. That's that, right. That made up this language. So we humans basically are the 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 DNA of everything represented on this planet. One part of us or another is very similar. To every single animal on here, that That's doesn't right. really mean that somebody yeah. uh, played with <laughs> us in a petri dish, and, and you know what I mean. It could be just this is evolution on this planet. You have to be like this <laughs> to survive here. Well, you know, at the end of the day, if you go and speak to um, ancient, you know, cultures that still exist, you know, elders, um, you know, the, the the message that generally is passed along is that we are this you know we are part of the planet and the same sort of makeup there is a connection even though we've lost that connection right um i think the ancient egyptians had a very stronger connection to nature than what we do now with now we've completely lost it and we're living in our I, own I would, I I know, delusional states i, I would um, <laughs> uh, people who came before our technology had a better understanding of nature the native americans up here in, in the, the natives of australia just about anywhere you go where you take away technology and you go back a thousand years and they were far more in tune with nature than we are now we're distracted away from it you know what i mean now uh, to answer yeah. that question and from my perspective as as a you know as a, a minister matt um but with the with the information that i do have if you're you're referring really more to the to like the nephilim at that point with the what Omar was talking about before, in fact, when he read your thing, I would suggest that that's not something that we are now a part of, but it's something that we will evolve into. I don't think that we were bred with the, the uh, light beings that were here so long ago. That's, I think, something that is an evolution that we are going to become. We will aspire to that when we vibrate at a higher level than we are here. So I would go ahead. No, not right now. We are. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. Right now, we're, we're nowhere near that vibration, right? <laughs> but we humans, at some point, uh, I believe that knowing what I know about what happens when you move up, you know, to the next levels of reality, uh, as you aspire back closer to the one, that at some point you do become that. We do our our physical body diminishes 
as we become more light and our spirit becomes more light uh, and then we become more crystalline and that's when the physical this you know this corporal uh, carbon based uh, water and carbon based uh, hemoglobin starts to fall away and we start to become more what we are in you know up here our higher self our immortal wow. soul. Patricia speaks about this quite well. Um, she explains it. I think she, um, we talked about this on the last show. Yeah. I'm yeah. To, to, well, we, we touched on it. Um, but I've heard about, I've heard her speak about it, you know, obviously here. So um, she explains this quite well, um, but it's more like a cyclical thing as well. Yes, everything is cyclical. Yeah. yeah. So um, now, yeah. Like uh, right, right now, from what I see in the world, I don't, I don't really think. I think we're still going backwards. Um, uh, every year, it just people's mentality seem to get worse. So I'm a half, I'm a half full guy, not a half empty guy. So I, I tend to see the opposite point of view from that. I tend to see that that more and more every year, more and more people are waking up and starting to become more and more aware and more and more spiritual that you know the the black lives matter movement and the me too movement here in america would suggest that people are tired of being oppressed and that only happens when you have the knowledge of of wait a minute this isn't right mm-hmm. and i don't like it anymore and i'm going to stand up that you know that suggests movement forward not backwards if we were moving well, backwards more, they would have never said anything about being uh, you know these women wouldn't have came out and said i've been abused and these guys in hollywood are abusing women to get a job they have to have uh, sex with these guys that would have never came out it would have been the same way it was in the 60s and women would be in the house being married and pregnant and barefoot and do your job and shut up mm-hmm. That's sure. my in, in, in that respect but it, it's also the people's attitudes towards each other and i've noticed even people that you know um say that they're very woke uh, they can be quite rude to other people um yeah. And you know, you can't, you can't, you can't really have that if you're going to be reaching right. for enlightenment. Oh, hi, hi right. <laughs> you, right. you know, then then you're gonna have to have that connection too. And right now, with the, the world and the people are still very much divided, and it's continuing to divide even more. Well, you know, that's been done on purpose. This last year yeah, has been, been done on purpose. Just manic, you know. Um, sometimes I'm I'm too scared to even look on Facebook because the world has just gone through such shit. No, that that's being done on purpose. It's really? a, there's a, there's a struggle going on. That's a whole other conversation that I talk about. Watch some of my shows, and you'll see that explained. <laughs> I have short videos that I've done on uh, what's going on now over here in America. Uh, if you look on that, you'll see this is Orion Rising News instead of a long two-hour show, although I only do an hour now. But if you look at the small ones, mm-hmm. I talk about COVID-19. I talk about the the cabal and what's going on and why uh, that is it's going on. So those are shorter, about 20-minute videos. It doesn't take long to get through those because, uh, you know, most people in America can't stand more than five seconds without turning their head and going, what was that? Was that a butterfly? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I do have shorter ones that you guys can look up on on YouTube on Orion Rising. Uh, but Personally, it'll explain kind of some of that, what's going on and what has been going on. And it's a giant gaslight, and and that's you know I don't want to get into that because we could go all day. I could go all day just talking about that because I've done hundreds of hours of research and probably close to hundreds of hours of of me speaking into this microphone <laughs> about it. 
for me personally, you know, to uh, to go to Ildi's point, what I find is happening is that there's a great shift and change that's happening. Oh, yeah, but absolutely. before we can rebuild, you know, it's like uh, you know, it's like when you go to the army, right, to the boot camp. They, you know, first they break you down and then they rebuild you. Yeah. And I think what's happening right now, as you know, Ildi was saying, is that you know there's so much hate and so much anger towards one another, and people are not understanding each other. I think what that is, is mm. that the process of us breaking down for us to rebuild ourselves. And it's just something that, you know, we're collectively doing uh, unconsciously via our hive mind, right? Because our human hive mind is, you know, plays a huge integral part on us. And unconsciously, I think we're creating this environment and the situation to where we can break ourselves down and then to rebuild us. Right? And I'm really glad that you guys mentioned this because this is something that I'm going to be touching on um, on Orion Rising's third birthday on uh, June 26. Uh, I'll be next doing, Friday. Uh, this Friday. Yeah, so I'll be doing a uh, a Saturn webinar where you know I I call it connect the dots, right? So you know, I'm going to take symbology and uh, you know symbolism and buildings and music and everything that's you know that we're surrounded with. I'm going to connect those dots and I'm going to he's pretty much speaking exactly about what Ildi just mentioned here as to why this is happening to us, when it began, and uh, how it can end. You know, I don't have the answer on how it's going to end, but definitely what I do know is how it began and where we are. And then this is the information that I'm going to present. And then from there, you know, it's really up to the viewer and people who are listening and watching and doing research for them to, you know, essentially grab the baton and uh, go out there and connect more dots and then try to figure out how the end game is going to play out, right? But, you know, absolutely, you know, right now there's, uh, you know, like I read a book, uh, you know, by Nina Roberts uh, a few weeks ago that she sent me called uh, It's Not All Love and Light, right? And uh, she's absolutely correct because it's not all love and light because when you try to share love and light, there's a lot of hatred that comes back at you. And mm -hmm. a lot of negative energy that comes at you, right? So, you know, it's not always love and light. Like yesterday, I put up a picture where I made the uh, an image where I have uh, Samuel Jackson, right? And then he's like uh, uh, something like, uh, you know, you need your uh, chakras aligned, motherfucker. And then uh, <laughs> you know, the next to it, you know, it's got that, uh, you know, quartz crystal brass knuckles, right? And it's like when a motherfucker needs his chakras aligned. <laughs> Right, so you know, I, you know, I was saying, hey, you know, I can be love and light, but I can be this too, right? The guy with the brass knuckles are coming, you know, align your chakras for you. But you know, I don't, I don't really want to go that avenue. I would rather stay peaceful and love, and you know, and and have that positive energy. But sometimes, you know, it's just almost impossible with the environment that you know people create around you. Right. I don't mean like, you know, physically around us, but when we're like on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or whatever, you know, just through some of the comments that people leave behind are just extremely negative and those, you know, really have an effect on a person. Well, right. you know, it's, it's um, to, to, to give you an example here, you know, um, people have lost touch with uh, animals and pets. Keeping yeah. pets is, is not something that people do. And, you know, the foreigners for years have been big advocates about why you should have pets and blah, 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 blah. And there's a lot of groups now here in, in Egypt that were started by foreigners. The problem now is 
that these groups, when there's Egyptians that are, you know, quite new to pet ownership, that are ha they have zero understanding of what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, what's right, what's wrong, they go and ask for help and questions, they belittle them and, you know, really put them down and it really shits me to the yeah. point where today, today I had to leave a group because it was always the same, constant same people, you know, blah, 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 you know, and I was like, you guys are not helping anything. You started this to help, but now it's just turned into, you know, we're better than you. And yeah. so, so many Egyptians that I private messaged and I was trying to explain things, you know, basic concepts to them because they're lost and they don't know. And, you know, I've posted like free books on uh, how to look after animals. There is no need to attack them. They're, it's not that they're doing these things because they're shitty people. They, they just don't understand. Ildi, question on that. Now, is it... Uh... Is it cultural or is it religious based that, um, you know, up until now that Egyptian people um, haven't had uh, house pets like cats and dogs? Well, it's, it's more, um, obviously in ancient times that wasn't the case at all, but um, that movement sort of started with the modern day religions and I'm, I'm still trying to look at, you know, the exact timeline of that happened but I know that in uh, I guess the MENA region specifically there is you know all these thoughts like um, you know the animals are dirty um, or that they chase away angels I know that some of the religious leaders have spoken um, quite rubbish about animals and that's been imprinted in people's brains um, but in ancient times, like the Ballady dogs, um, like the one that I have, um, the street dogs, you know, they um, they were pets. They had names. They were collars. They were trained to be guard dogs and, you know, hunters and whatever. And they're quite smart and genetically they're superior to other animals and yet they get treated like shit in this country, you know. I can see now um, a lot more of my neighbours adopting the street dogs, which is quite nice. Um, but, you know, this is going to be a very slow process. For example, when you have a population where 60% of the people are, are quite poor or living on the poverty or below um, the poverty line, they're not going to be able to afford pets because the pet food is insanely expensive, like compared to even the West. West and, and usually we get the shittest quality stuff here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the shift is, is going to take some time, but, you know, as long as people just have a positive attitude towards dogs, I think, you know, that'll be some sort of an improvement. You know, I can, where it went wrong, I don't know. I can, uh, you know, I can attest to uh, what you mentioned earlier, where uh, you know some of uh, the imams, uh, you know, their uh, philosophy is that animals are dirty. Uh, you know, having grown up and being raised in uh, in an Islamic household, uh, you know, I heard the same thing that uh, you know. I remember asking my dad if we can get a dog, and uh, he said, "No, we can't get a dog because it's haram." and uh, the dog is dirty and uh, we can't have it. So I was like, okay, well, how about a cat? And, you know, it was the same <laughs> at, that time, 
as well, right? It's like, no, you know, the, the cat is a haram as well, you know, and for people who don't understand haram, uh, you know, haram means bad. Um, yeah. you know, so, you know, essentially what my dad was saying, get, you know, no dogs are bad, cats are bad, you can't have a pet because they're dirty. And, uh, you know, that thinking is, you know, really it's a cancerous thinking in my opinion, because, uh, you know, cats and dogs and donkeys and horses and elephants, you know, for me, my mentality tells me is that they're a projection of myself because I am an expression of the infinite consciousness. And so is an animal. It doesn't matter if it's a mouse or an ant, a dog or a cat, it too is an expression of the infinite consciousness and in that it should be given the same type of respect that we give to each other. Yeah, but the, in, in the same argument, there's a lot of people that are dirty outside on the street there as well in every country, you know. So yeah. um, I'm fairly certain my dogs are, are cleaner than some of the humans out there, um, in, you know, in their soul and how they behave and, and also, you know, physically cleaner. To be evil. And there's nothing we can do about that because that, that's the choice that they have here. So you're right. There's going to be people out there that are just plain evil and they're going to take advantage of things. There's going to be some, some people out there that are kind of evil. You know, that's just, the, that's their choice to be that person. And unfortunately that they have that choice here. So, I mean, in this place, it was set up that way so that we can, so we have to make that choice, you know, after this place, you know, when you go to the next level, there is still that in the universe, but you're not stuck with them on the same planet. Everybody gets separated after this. But unfortunately, everybody has to come through here. <laughs> Sucks. But we, it's essential for us to grow. Without it, we wouldn't grow. Without it, we, there would be no growth because we would all be complacent. In my, uh, in my book, Earth Frequency, the commandeered bandwidth, uh, you know, what you're mentioning about these evil people, uh, you know, I go into detail about that and uh, actually gave them a name and uh, I call them phantom people, uh, you know, meaning that uh, there's nobody at the wheel of the avatar. Uh, you know, this human body computer avatar that we have, it's the consciousness that is using this avatar to interact with this frequency, just as we use telephones to uh, interact with the internet or a television to interact with a television station or a radio station. You know, so for me, it's the same concept with this body avatar where, you know, the consciousness at some particular time decided that this avatar that is currently inhabiting isn't up to the task of doing the job that it needs to do to have the human experience. So it abandons the avatar and leaves it uh, you know, driverless. So the biological aspect of it is that this body computer avatar needs to play out the uh, the biological role of like, you know, from cradle to grave kind of deal, right? So when the consciousness abandons the body computer avatar, this thing is just like running all around and it's showing absolute no compassion, no empathy, no love, you know, no emotions of any kind. And, uh, you know, for me, if the body computer avatar does have consciousness in it, it will display empathy and love and compassion. That's beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tend to look at it almost uh, very similar to that because, you know, it is a lack of that stuff, but but there is a there is a consciousness in there. They've chosen to follow the ego. They've chosen to be, 
not good, but bad, but evil. So yeah. you have those people that are that way. And you're right. They're more shadow than they are light. So I agree with you. Yeah. Calling them shadow people is a great is a great analogy because they basically live more in the shadow than they do in the light because the light would be the good side would be would would be being a good person like me. Yeah. You, Ildi. Be compassionate about people and wanting to help. Okay. So that's, I mean, it comes down to that. You're either in service to others or you're in service to self. That's what it comes down to. So it comes down to you want to help people and then, you know, and help yourself as well, but you want to help people. And then there's the, I want to help myself and I don't care what happens to anybody else. That's, you know, that's the, you know, definitive line. And you're right. They get darker and darker and there's more shadow to them than there is light. So it's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ildi, thank you very much, my friend, my sister from another mother. I, uh, <laughs> I totally appreciate you, my sister. Uh, you know, I love you to death. And, uh, you know, I always uh, appreciate when you come and, uh, you know, drop uh, knowledge on us. And uh, each and every single time, it, uh, you know, it really makes my brain tick. And, uh, you know, last night when you, uh, you know, sent me your uh, the message, with the presentation today, I was so excited. I told Amy, I was like, oh, wow, somebody's actually going to do, um, you know, fossils in Egypt because so far no one's actually, you know, almost afraid to touch that issue. So I was like, man, I'm really uh, excited for this. It's it's not that they're afraid to touch the issue. I think there's so much stuff here and everybody picks a focus. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people will for example, you know, focus on the Great Pyramid and then they don't look at any of the other pyramids or they don't look at anything else in this country. Even, you know, what's around um, the pyramids on the Giza Plateau. And, you know, for a lot of people, if you, if you don't live here and you don't spend an enormous time on site, there is a lot of things that you're going to miss because... You, you know, most people don't spend, you know, six hours walking around on the Giza Plateau on a regular basis and going to see different tombs and whatever. They come here on short visits and try and absorb as much as humanly possible and there's just too much to absorb here. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, um, you know, people like even Patricia, she's been here 12 years and, and she's still learning a lot of, I mean, she knows a ton of stuff and because she's, you know, had a lot more time and traveled far more extensively. But, um, you know, there's still, there's still a lot to learn here. It's, it's almost like an endless journey. So people's focus will always be on other things. This is just something that really you know, intrigued me when I started finding, you know, bits and pieces of fossils here, there and everywhere. And I kind of wanted to know for myself why. But there isn't a great deal of um, work done on it yet. You know, if you, if you Google it, you're only going to find, you know, a few websites here and there. And most of them discuss the exact same thing. So, yeah. you know, you really need like I said, a lot more geologists and, and whatever, whoever else that needs to come in here and, and start looking at more, um, doing more research. But even then, their focus is going to be on very much on one thing. And, you know, it's going to take a long time before somebody pulls all of that together into some sort of like a more, you know, open narrative. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, the, it, yeah, this country is um, is 
more than one lifetime's worth of uh, research, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You can see that again. And people have spent a lifetime there and they still needed another two, three lifetimes to even, you know, scratch the tip. <laughs> well, this is why, you know, I want to get my son into it at an early age and, and get him interested and hopefully, you know, he won't want to be like a soccer player but an Egyptologist or something and then, you know, he can um, run with it and continue, you know, down that line but also have the benefit of learning about this stuff before any of the other guys do. So... I don't know, cross fingers. It's up to him, really. All you can do is cross your fingers and hope that what you did was a good thing. You know, I have a 30-year-old, and uh, when he was a teenager, I wasn't sure what was going on with him, you know, and and uh, now he's turned into a, a good man. My brother got him a job uh, working for the government, and uh, he's doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So, yeah. before uh, we wrap this up, uh, what is next for you, buddy? Uh, do you have any projects on the go? Do you have any tours that are uh, upcoming, or are you organizing any tours? Uh, um, give uh, a lowdown on that. Well, you know, I'm I'm going to be giving birth sometime in September. So, uh, you know, for me, most of this year is going to be quite motherly and not mm -hmm. I'm, I'm I will try and get out and about if I can but I mean that also you know depends on how the world you know figures itself out for the rest of this year because so far it's it's kind of felt like we've lived through, lived through a decade yeah right Twilight. <laughs> Like, Once we get into the holidays, I think things will change a little bit. But here in America, nothing's going to change until the election. It's going to get worse running up to November to the election here in the United States and probably close to you too because they're trying to, you know, go after Benjamin Netanyahu. They're trying to go after uh, the what's his name over in England. So there's going to be a lot of strife still leading up to the holidays. But I'm hoping that once. November hits, so things will settle down a little bit. And um, but who knows? You never can tell. You know, yeah. the craziness going on with this cabal right now, and they're in their death rolls. They know they're losing their power, and they're doing everything they can to get it back. And and that includes blowing up the world if they have to. You know? Yeah. Well, so, uh, just on that, right? Um, I know I've noticed a, the, an enormous amount of chatter from people about the pyramids and how they were built by slaves and why they should be torn down and all that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, unfortunately, it's the, it's the human race's dark night of the soul. Um, every, everybody's going through that, even forcibly going through that now. So they're, they're tearing down everything over here. They're trying to erase all of history. They're saying everything's racist. Uh, you know, and look, this is actually quite well documented and it makes my brain bleed that people don't even want to um okay if you don't want to pick up a book i can understand because books are so like last you know whatever <laughs> right <laughs> I, mean, I still print love them like, but print is dead um, no, I'm kidding. no it's not dead i love i love print but um oh i do too i love the smell of a book i don't know why <laughs> yeah but you can google this stuff and it's and if you come here, you pay 400 pounds extra when you go on the Giza Plateau and you can go to the workers' village. And if you go with a tour guide, he'll explain the whole thing to you. Right. They will not 
built by slaves. There was slaves here, but they weren't the same sort of slaves as what we're talking about. You know, oh, yeah, that whole thing was propagated by the, by the New Testament, Ildi. Um, but you're absolutely right because when you look into history, it's not that the Jews were slaves; they were contracted workers. They but were not it's, slaves. It's the, the slaves were literally the slaves here were um, when they went to war and Egypt won. They took all the soldiers as slaves. And that's freaking smart because then who's going to attack you if they don't have an army? And they weren't treated like poorly as, you know, the slaves, that, you know, in more modern history. They were fed well. They were just, you know, they had to maintain temples and whatever. But right. at the end of the day, you know, this was a strategy to protect the country rather than, you know, to be some snob who wanted someone to clean their house. Okay. So at the end of the day, the pyramids are an insanely complex structure and it was not built by slaves. I don't care what anybody thinks or says about this. And if anybody wants to come here and try and do something about it, they're just trying to create civil unrest. Slavery seems to be their there's been earthquakes that and uh, that couldn't bring those babies down. So good luck to you, okay? But I'll be watching right. from house. Right, you watching from your house on the balcony with binoculars, <laughs> laughing at them as they're trying yeah, to tear it down. The, uh, the right. last concert uh, <laughs> Ildi shared with us there a few weeks ago. My God, it was just gorgeous, and uh, she was out on her deck, and uh, mm. we were doing the uh, Talking Egypt series, and uh, in the background, you can see the pyramids, and the sun was going Oh, down. I know. Every picture wow, that Ildi has so ever posted, even at the restaurants she goes to, I am always so envious. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I go, my gods, look at that food. Look yeah. at the view. Sometimes she's taking a picture of the restaurant. She's not even paying attention. She's, like, so used to the views there. I'm looking in the background going, oh, my God, look at that background. And she's yeah. like, look at the food. I'm like, look at the, okay, yeah, the food's yeah, good, but look at that background. Back there. <laughs> look it's at that view, man. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. All right, LD, uh, thank you very much, my friend. I, uh, right. I uh, appreciate your time that uh, you've given us and uh, helping us to celebrate our uh, fifth year of uh, streaming the truth to the masses. And, uh, my, uh, you know, thank you for uh, all your participation over the years, uh, all the webinars that you've done, all the interviews that you've given us, all the time that you've given us, uh, you know, really, truly, uh, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, and I, I try to uh, express that uh, as much as I can. I have, uh, you know, just a shit ton of respect for you, uh, for Muhammad, uh, for your family. And, uh, you know, I wish you uh, the very best and uh, very happy and a, uh, uh, you know, great pregnancy. And, uh, you know, hopefully everything's going to be fine. And, you know, can't wait to see a little Muhammad or, a, you know, itty bitty Ildi. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really look forward to that. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can, uh, you know, connect here again soon. So uh, thank you, my friend. I uh, really appreciate yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> And thank you everyone for uh, sticking around and uh, checking out this uh, fantastic uh, presentation from uh, Ildi.